How are we doing today, everybody? You guys having a good week? Yeah, you guys seem tired today. Is everything okay? Oh, you guys just missed your home? You miss your beds? You know, school starts in like six or seven weeks. You guys miss that? Yeah, that's what I thought. You better wake up because school's coming and you better enjoy this week while you got it. Hey, I have just had the best week ever with you guys so far and uh, intend on just continuing our time studying the character of Daniel tonight. Let's do a little recap. Night one, Daniel and really his entire nation get captured by Babylon. They're in exile. Morning one, message two, we looked at the fact that there is a God. He's huge. That psalm says he holds the spance of the universe in the palm of his hand. The universe, which scientists say is ever expanding away from itself, they have no idea where the end is. God's word says that he holds it in the palm of his hand. That's how big he is. Big God, big throne, big robe. Holy, holy, holy. Third talk. You remember third talk? Anybody? Yeah, we looked at trials, and we looked how life is going to be difficult sometimes, that life is going to be hard, that you, even at your young age, have to be prepared for the difficulty of life because a hard life filled with trials is a reminder that we need to make room for God in it. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We're not clever enough to navigate the nuance that life will throw at you during difficult times. Hardship creates space in our souls for the God of the universe to come and be present with us. And then last night, we looked at this concept of sin and how the Bible ultimately says that sin brings death. That is to say separation. That sin has ultimately separated us from God. We looked at how King Nebuchadnezzar had an opportunity to repent, and he failed to, and so he goes crazy. His kingdom falls apart. He loses everything, but most of all, in that moment, he lost an opportunity to know God. He knew a lot about God because Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been faithful to show him miracles, to interpret dreams, the whole incident with the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar had a front row seat to the power of God. And still for most of his life missed him. Why? Because he chose sin. Well, tonight I would love to share with you how this God that we've been talking about all week has an answer for sin. That this God that we've been talking about all week has an answer for the death that sin brings upon us. A part of my family's story that I haven't yet shared with you is that my youngest daughter is actually adopted. And she was adopted on July 18th, 2018. And for the two years before that, we were journeying with her through foster care. And so twice a week, she would have to go visit with some family members that were a part of her family before the courts decided that she would become one of our children. And that was a really traumatizing thing for her. She was very young at the time. And in an effort to make that transition easier on her, my wife had this amazing idea. She said, what if we just took her little backpack and we filled it with things 
that reminded her of our home so that when she went to visitation, she had things that made her feel safe. She had things that helped her to feel comfort. She had things that helped her to feel as though it was all going to be okay. And so for two years, my wife would wake up, we would pack a lunch for her, she would get in the car, she would drive to visit. Well, on July 18th, 2018, visitation was no more because on that day, a judge looked us in the face and said, from this day forward, it will be as if she was born to you. She got a new name on that day. The big day. One of the best days of our family. Well, a couple months later, I was cleaning the garage. And as I was cleaning the garage, my kids do what you guys tend to do when dads clean the garage, which is really anything except help. Uh, it's just like, oh, there's that toy I lost. There's that thing I was looking for. Look at that black widow. Let's make it fight the daddy long leg or like whatever you do when your dad cleans the garage, right? And I was cleaning the garage and the little one, she's running around, just having a good old time, playing with the broom, squirting the dog with the hose. And I open up this cabinet. I'm sure most of you have a cabinet or a closet like this in your house. It's like the place where everything goes that you don't know where else to put it. Yeah. Well, after Maylie's adoption day, her little backpack went in that closet because we weren't sure what to do with it. And so as I'm cleaning the garage, I open the cabinet and I take her backpack out. And it was like a moment that I was just filled with grief and joy and the reminder of God's goodness, the hardship. We would describe it like a broken hallelujah. That's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. And as I'm sitting there kind of reminiscing over that journey that we had been on to adopt our fourth child, Maylie runs up and she goes, oh, there's my backpack. I've been looking for that. She said it in a way that wasn't like, oh, there's something that I lost that I've now found. She said it like, there's something that during a hard time in my life brought me comfort. And I remember having this moment as a dad as I held that backpack in my hand, feeling as though, I think it's time for a new one. Like this backpack represents a lot of difficulties in her life. This backpack had traveled places with her that she does not have to go to anymore. And she said, can I have the backpack? And I said, I'll make you a deal. What if we get a new backpack? Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. There's probably a name for them. But what's really popular, or at least at the time was, among kids are just those like miniature Disney versions of backpacks. You ever seen those? Well, she's always been a big fan of Lilo and Stitch. And so I said, I'll, I'll tell you this. I said, sis, let's do this. I'll trade you this backpack for that brand new, which turns out they're like $80. What was I thinking at the time? Uh, so I'll trade you this backpack for the Lilo and Stitch one that's at the toy store that you always look at when we walk by it. And she goes, really? And I go, yeah. And she goes, that would be awesome, because then I would have two backpacks. And I was like, <laughs> no, uh, let's explain a trade, okay? Here's how a trade works. Remember how the Lakers got LeBron James? Uh, and I'm like breaking it down for her. Um, I go, no, no, trade means we're going to get rid of this backpack. She says, but I like that backpack. I said, I know, but this backpack served a purpose. We don't need it anymore. 
This backpack represents something that's really not your identity. It's not a part of your life anymore. We'll get a new backpack to usher in this new life with a new name and a new home and all the newness in your life. We'll get a new backpack for that. She went, really? And so that's what we did. We went down to the toy store. She still has the Lilo and Stitch backpack to this day. Now, why do I share that story with you? I share that story with you because backpacks are cool. I'm just kidding. I share that story with you. I'm making sure you're paying attention. Uh, I share that story with you because I think tonight, as I was just standing on the balcony praying over you, I think tonight, in light of what we learned about sin last night, God would love to exchange that death for new life. God would love to take what up until this moment today has represented something dark and difficult and hard and at times triggering Like for those of you who don't yet know Jesus, let me just call the shot of where this message is going to go. I would love to explain to you who exactly this person of Jesus is. I would love to explain to you that there was in fact a man named Jesus. It's irrefutable. This isn't just a story that was in the Bible. Many people have accounts of who Jesus was. The Bible gives us the best description. And in fact, just the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of over 65 Old Testament prophecies that were talked about. The fact that a guy named Jesus would come who would be born the way he was in the town where he was. Literally, dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of prophecies. That's promises from God that were made 1,200 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. These promises were made. And you might be saying, yeah, 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 it's just a religious story. Lots of religions have a version of Jesus. I'm sure they do, because even the heavens declare the glory of God. The story of Jesus is one of life and death and resurrection. The story of Jesus is one of hope. And for those of you who don't yet know him, I would love to clearly and soberly describe for you this evening who Jesus was and how Jesus is the embodiment How Jesus is the character of God in human form, proving to us that there's hope and that God has the power to make dead things come alive, which is incredible because sin brings death. Ultimately, Jesus saves. In order to do that, let's open up to the book of Daniel. Open up to the book of Daniel with me. And as you turn to Daniel 6, let me catch you up on a couple things that have happened, okay? In Daniel chapter 4, for those of you who have been paying attention, for those of you who care, right at the end of King Nebuchadnezzar's life, he accepts Daniel's invitation and he repents. You saw that depicted tonight with the Nez kind of turning and, and praying that prayer. And then he dies. And with King Nebuchadnezzar now being out of the picture, a new king is brought into play. And this new king is talked about in Daniel 5, verse 1. His name is King Belshazzar. It says that he gave, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, he gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the kings and his nobles and his wives and all of these different people might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of Jerusalem, and the king and his goblets and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron. So the new king 
follows in the footsteps of most of the life of the old king, completely overlooking Daniel's God. It's a fascinating tale. That, that Nebuchadnezzar's legacy wasn't one marked by faith, it was marked by power. Power corrupts. Power has this way of making us want more power. So that, that lineage is passed on. New king is elected. Daniel interprets a vision for him. If you were to read on in chapter 5, we won't study that tonight. But Daniel interprets a, a vision of him, of this giant hand appearing. And then at the end of chapter 5, he's killed. So we had multiple chapters with Nebuchadnezzar. We get one with King Belshazzar. Then a new king is elected. His name is Darius. And that's who we're going to look at in regards to this portion of Daniel's story right now. We're just going to read 13 verses here. It says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administra administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went in a group to the king Darius and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal advisors, prefects, satraps, advisors, governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty issue the decree and put it into writing and it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of Medes and the Persians which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that anyone who, uh, during the next 30 days... Praise to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. They said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Let's pray. God, we come before you tonight asking that you would just do something miraculous in here. That, God, you would do what we're about to see you do for Daniel. That you would save. God, we pray that the power of your gospel would transform hearts in this place this evening. For those of us who know you, would tonight serve as a sweet reminder of your love and grace and goodness. Your mercy, your sacrifice. I pray for those in here, God, who don't yet know you. I pray that tonight you would make the things of you clear to them and that you would help them to, beginning today, 
experience the sweetness of a life lived with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So King Darius comes on the scene, and he really uh, seems to be a good guy, but he has this group around him. And this group around him are very jealous of Daniel. There's a whole sermon in there about how to choose your friends. You could ask your counselors about it. And these, these men and women who like, would have been in governance alongside of King Darius realize that Daniel is too good at what he does, and he's too faithful to his God, and so the only way to get him to fall is going to be to do so through his faith. And so what they do is they convince King Darius to make praying to anyone except for himself illegal. And they have the king sign it so it reads as if it's the king's idea and the king's law. Now kings have power. And kings have to uphold that power. That's how you keep order within the kingdom. And so what does Daniel do? Daniel's now in his 80s, by the way. What does Daniel do as a result of this law? What does he do? Come on. He prays. He prays. What'd you say? Oh, love it. What's your name? Jackson. Bingo. He does exactly what he did before. Daniel doesn't start a prayer protest. Daniel doesn't stand in the middle of the street and say, oh my God of Israel. No. Because Daniel's faith was never meant to just be a public spectacle. Daniel's faith faith wasn't a cultural version of Judaism. Daniel's faith was personal and intimate, and God was somebody that he knew. And so in the face of this law where prayer now becomes illegal, Daniel goes to his room, opens the window, and prays. And as he does so, the weasels who created this law catch him. And they go back to King Darius and they say, didn't you make a law that made praying to anyone except you illegal? And he goes, yeah. And they go, well, Daniel did it. The king's bummed out. The king's bummed out because he likes Daniel, but the king is in a bit of a pickle. Because if he goes this way, he has to kill his friend. And if he goes this way, he's not being a good ruler. As you read on, what you'll see is that the king has to uphold this law. It says then in verse 15, then men went as a group to the king of to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty about the law. Verse 16. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Darius had faith. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. 
It says this in verse 23, that the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the lion's den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered and crushed all their bones. King Darius would go on to write this decree that almost reads like a worship song. Friend, what's the point? The point is this. God saved Daniel. Daniel had faith in God, and God saved Daniel. Reminds me of this moment. I don't know if any of you are athletes. There's a a specific type of athlete that I really like to watch. And they're athletes who just kind of have this like natural talent mixed with the honing of skill. Like I was never very good at sports, but I knew how to work hard. So I only got so far. But there's a type of athlete who has it like innate in them. There are athletes who just have it. They're born with the right genetics. That mixed with the ability to learn skills, they're incredible. Do any of you play sports in here? What sport do you play? Yeah. Lacrosse. Lacrosse? What about you? Gymnastics. What about you? Gymnastics. I almost said gymnast. And what? Soccer and basketball, yeah. Gymnastics. All right, this is perfect because I got a story for you about gymnastics. Uh, so my, my oldest daughter decided after watching a movie that she was going to be a gymnast. She gets it from me. Uh, I'm just kidding. You've never seen a six foot five, 300 pound gymnast before. But my daughter has this drive and this determination, she excels at everything she tries. And so she would literally watch YouTube videos of how to do stretches, of how to do a backbend. She can literally do a backflip. Like she can just stand there and do a backflip, self-taught. Eventually we put her into classes because I don't really want her to get hurt or like break something. And so we probably should have a professional tell her how to do this because YouTube can only take you so far with something like gymnastics, right? Like Learning how to code or work on your car is one thing, but gymnastics, we might want a real-life human coach there. And so one day, my daughter's in the backyard working on gymnastics, and I'm in the house, in the kitchen. Right outside the kitchen is the backyard. On the side of the backyard is this giant 40-foot tree. And as I'm sitting there doing the dishes, my daughter's working on bar techniques on the branch of a tree because that's how we raise them in the Finn family, okay? That's like how we roll. We go hard in the paint. When I hear cries from my daughter. Now, one day you'll understand this if you become a parent, but when your daughter's crying help, there's two kinds of help. There's like, oh no, help, and that usually means there's a spider. And then there's like, oh no, help, which means like, if you don't get here, I'm gonna die, or at least I'm scared I'm gonna die. She did that one, not the spider one. And so I run out there and I look, and like 12 to 15 feet up in this tree is my daughter hanging on a branch by the tips of her fingers. Below her is a sprinkler with a spike coming out of the ground made of rebar to kind of hold this tall sprinkler up so it could spray the whole lawn area. And she goes, Dad, help, I'm slipping. And so I did what any good father does. I said, you got yourself into it, you can get yourself out of it. You guys are sick. You should be ashamed of yourselves. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Now, 
what did I do? I stood there, and I climbed up on the, like, part of the fence, and I reached up, and I grabbed her, and I took her down, and I stood her on the ground, and I put my arms around her, and I hugged her, and I said, please don't do that again. That's scary for you, but it was more scary for me as a parent. And she said, okay. And to this day, she's never gotten stuck in a tree. But it was in that moment, it was in that moment where I felt like the, the perfect illustration of where we sit in our sinfulness was just like right before my eyes. You have to understand this about what we talked about in regards to sin last night. You can't save yourself. In the same way Daniel couldn't save himself in the den of lions. In the same way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could not save themselves in the fiery furnace. Sin is not something that you can save yourself from. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of scripture reading. There's no amount of communion or worship that can save you. Those things are meant to transform you. It's only Jesus who saves us. And my fear is... In a church camp filled with tons of kids that go to youth group a lot, that we wrongfully assume that that's what does the saving. Friend, that's the path to Jesus. It's only Jesus who has the power to save you. When we put our faith in Jesus, what the scripture teaches is that his sacrifice, which I'll explain in a second, covers our sin. It makes us new. It makes us right with God. God requires and desires perfection. We are sinful. We are not perfect. Jesus' perfection becomes our perfection. And in doing so, we now have the ability to stand before the holy, holy, holy God of the universe without stain or blemish because the blood of Christ covers us. Do you remember that passage in Ephesians 2 that we started with last night? Let me finish it for you. Ephesians 2, if you remember where we started It said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, for it is by grace that you have been saved. That verse is one of the most profound verses in all of the Bible. Did you see what it said? It said that that because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, for God to be rich in mercy, think of it like, like, a, like a rich friend's parents or like a bank. God has lots of mercy. And what the scriptures teach us about God is that he's very generous with his mercy. But it's not just mercy that God has offered us through the person and work of Jesus. It's also grace. It's mercy and it's grace. Do you know the difference between the two? Here's the difference between mercy and grace. Let's say you're flying in your parent's car. Maybe it's like a Tesla. 100 miles an hour through a 25 mile an hour speed limit zone at school. And as you scream through that intersection, a cop pulls you over. And he says, how old are you? And you're like, I'm 12. Don't have a driver's license. Clearly a stolen car. What are you deserving of in that moment? Jail. Jail. 
big time jail, car impounded, fine. Your parents also probably going to go to jail for like child endangerment, okay? Here, here's mercy. Mercy is the police officer pulls you over. I'm the police officer. I pull you over and I say, I'm not going to let you drive home, but you're off the hook. I'm going to show you mercy. Grace is this. Grace is, you fly by 100 miles an hour, you're 12 years old, stolen car. Um, Grace would be, you know what you've done is wrong, right? Yes. So let's go to court. You go to court, they put you in juvenile detention, or at least they tell you that's where you're headed. They arrest your parents. They fine you probably anywhere from fifty dollars to $75,000. Don't ask how I know, okay? Grace would be, oh, don't read into it. I was just a joke. Uh, I would steal something way cooler than a car. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Grace would be, I'm the police officer or the judge in this scenario. I go to jail for you. I pay the fine. You walk free. What this passage just told us is that our sin has brought upon us death, separation, that we're all by nature children deserving of wrath. Why? Because God is holy, holy, holy. But God, who is rich in mercy, has offered you mercy, and he's offered you grace through his son, Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus was born of a woman, that Jesus was born, we celebrate this at Christmas time, that he went on to live a perfect, sinless, blameless life. This is why you'll hear Jesus referred to as the lamb, because in the Old Testament, a lamb without blemish or spot was used as the atoning sacrifice to cover the sins of the Jewish people. Jesus became that lamb. And at Easter, what we celebrate is that Jesus went to the cross. He was arrested by the Roman authorities at the scheming of the Jewish religious leaders. And if we're, if we're misunderstanding the Bible, we'll begin to think that like maybe it was the Jews who killed Jesus, or maybe it's the Romans who killed Jesus. No, even if they didn't want him dead, he still would have went. Why? Because Jesus was the sinless, blameless lamb who was meant to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, to help make us right with God. And so on Good Friday, what we remember is the day that Jesus was hung on a cross brutally, caused to march that cross through town. Once he got to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, it teaches on Calvary's hill there that, that Jesus was strung out over a cross, that he had spikes driven through his wrists and his ankles, and that cross was hung up into the air. And as Jesus was on the cross, it tells us that in that moment, he cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friend, it's in that moment that Jesus experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. And then the Bible teaches in the book of John that when the time was right, Jesus breathed his last breath. He offered himself up as a sacrifice for us. He was taken down off that cross. He was placed into a, a rich dude named Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. A couple days later, Jesus' disciples wander down to the tomb. You celebrate this on Easter. And as his disciples wander down to the tomb, they do so to pay respects to their rabbi, to their teacher, to their friend. When they get there, there's an angel posted up at the tomb who's like, what are you doing here? And they're like, we're here to pay our respects to Jesus. And they go, he ain't here. He's resurrected. 
That word resurrection means everything to us as followers of Jesus. Because that word resurrection in and of itself is exactly where the hope of the gospel is found. Jesus could have just been a good person who died. But if he stayed dead, we are still dead in our sins and our trespasses and transgressions. But friend, it's Jesus' resurrection that proves that it's Jesus himself who has the power to make dead things come alive again, which is the best news you can hear if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus because the Bible teaches that where you sit today is in a state of spiritual death. The only hope you have is Christ himself. This is why the most popular verse in the entire Bible People who don't even have any room for God in their lives know this verse. John 3, 16. What does it say? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting, eternal, abundant, forever life. Friend, God loves you. I want you to just think for a second about what that means. For God so loved the world... It's easy in that word world to think of everyone else in the room except ourselves. But God loves you. God knows you. God cares about you. God deeply desires to have a relationship with you. And the thing that's gotten in the way of that is sin. And so that verse would go on to teach that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith in him, whoever believes that it's Jesus' resurrection alone that has the power to make dead things come alive, whoever believes in that truth will not experience death anymore. How, How do we get this? I love that he uses the word belief because belief is the one thing that no one can do for you. Belief isn't something your mom can do for you. Belief isn't something your dad can do for you. As I said earlier, belief is something that you have to do. Belief is that thing that as I've shared these words, if there's a a stirring in your soul, if you're going, could this be the answer to the emptiness I feel? Could this be the answer to the loneliness I feel? Could this be the light that remedies the darkness I feel? Belief is you saying, Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, you're enough for me. Paul says it this way in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, all that is necessary for you to put your faith in Jesus is for you to invite God into your life, for you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means Jesus is the king. And to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus alone has the power to make dead things come alive again. What the scriptures teach is that if you put your faith in Jesus, your sin is removed. And that void that was once in your life is now filled with the very presence of God. You're never alone. Now here's what I want you guys to know. I want you guys to know two things. I want you to know this. That if you've ever put your faith in Jesus, you're good. And if there's a part of you sitting in that chair tonight that's like, I think I need to do it again. Friend, you don't. What you need to do 
is you need to repent. You need to be honest with God and honest with yourself. And you need to allow the kindness of God to draw you close to him again through repentance. And there's some of you who go, I've never made this decision. And I'd really like to do this tonight. I would love to give you an opportunity to pray. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for real for the first time. And as I pray, you can just literally use my exact words. You can repeat the things that I say in your own words. But ultimately what you're doing is you're saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I want to put my faith in you. And I want to trust you. And I want to follow you forever. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gospel. Lord, I don't know what hope we have apart from it. The darkness in this world. The darkness in our own lives. Jesus, thank you for taking it away. Father, tonight I want to just pray a simple prayer for my friends in this room who maybe for the first time want to put their faith in you. Your word says that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that that you're Lord and that God raised you from the dead, that we will be saved. And so as I'm praying tonight, for those of you who have never done that before, if that's something you'd like to do, pray with me. Just right there in your chair. God, I believe. I believe that you're the king of kings. I believe that my sin has separated me from you. I also believe in your resurrection. I may not have all the answers. I may have more questions than I have answers. But one thing I know, that I can put my hope and my faith and my trust in you. And you accept me just as I am, no matter what I've done. God, you give me a hope and a future. And the promise of you, Lord Jesus, is that I can experience your kingdom here, now, tonight. God, I give you my life. I love you. Amen. So friends, before I jump off stage, let me just be crystal clear. There's some of us who go to camp and we get into a rhythm of this moment because we feel like it takes away whatever's happened since the last time we went to camp. This invitation I'm about to offer is not for you. The invitation I have for you is to stay seated and to hang back and talk to your counselor after. Like we talked about last night. If you have sin in your life, confess it. God promises to forgive you. He already has. But for those of you who just prayed with me for the first time tonight, having never done it before, for those of you who in this moment at this camp on June 29th, 2023, you say, tonight, I want to become a follower of Jesus. I'm going to count to three. And when I get to three, if that's you, again, someone who'd like to do this for the first time ever, I want you to stand. It doesn't matter if your friends stand or don't. It doesn't matter if you're embarrassed. It's okay. This act of standing, by the way, is not what saves you. This is just you telling the people around you, I'm a follower of Jesus now. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to count to three. And if you, for the first time ever, would like to put your faith in Jesus tonight, or you just did as you prayed with me, I want you to stand. Here we go. One, two, three. See you.
Stay standing. Stay standing. Here, here's what I love. Here's what I love. Here's what I love. Jesus says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, friend, tonight, like Daniel in that lion's den, you've been saved. Jesus is enough. Jesus' sacrifice is enough to give you a new life, an abundant life, a life filled with hope and peace and joy. But following Jesus means that you're going to deny yourselves and pick up your cross daily to follow him. See, this, this moment that you're in right now is not a one-time transactional moment. It's the start of something. It's the start of you beginning to follow after Jesus for the rest of your days. It's not going to be perfect. You are going to mess up. But you know what Daniel has taught us this week? To stay faithful. Even when we mess up, God invites us to come back to him. I want you to look to that leader who's around you, that one that's in your cabin. I want you to look to that person. And before you go home this week, I want you to ask them a simple question. Will you show me how to do this? Will you show me what it means to be a follower of Jesus? I promise you that that person that you're looking at right now has no greater joy and honor in this season of their life than to show you how to follow after Jesus. The last thing I'll say is this. The scriptures teach that the entirety of heaven rejoices when one sinner gets saved. Translation, there's a party in heaven for you right now. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay standing. I want you to stay standing. Stand back up if that's you. Hey, and if you're like, man, I'm just an embarrassed person, but I just got saved too, totally fine. Totally fine. I want you, if you're around these people who are standing, to just extend a hand. And let's pray a blessing over them tonight, okay? God, we thank you so much for how we just got to witness the miraculous new life that can only be found in you. Lord, we thank you that the gospel alone has the power to save. For those of us in this room who have been following you for a while, thank, for that, thank you for that reminder of how sweet salvation can be in moments like this. Lord, would you have these students? Would you hold them? Would you surround them with men and women that can show them what it means to be followers of you? Would you surround them with people who, who are ready to disciple them, who are ready to pour into them, God, who are ready to show them the way? I pray that you would strengthen their leaders, that you would strengthen their churches, and God, I pray that you would fill them with faith so that 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, these men and women are sharing the very faith that they received in this room tonight for the rest of their days. God, we love you and we thank you. And we pray all these things in the holy, holy, holy name of God, Jesus, who alone has the power to save. Amen. Amen. Do, do it after, okay? Well, if you stand with us, we're going.